Hi foodies, thanks for tuning in and I hope that you're all doing well. We just celebrated the 50th Earth Day last week and the topic of environmental stewardship, the health of this vast, beautiful planet, and our own health has been on my mind a lot lately. I've been wondering what are the consequences of mining the earth for fossil fuels, metals, and minerals, both to our food system and our health. In this episode, I want to take you on a journey into the boreal forest of northern Canada. This is a magical place, filled with a sweet scent of spruce trees, with a ground cover blanketed in spongy mosses, colorful lichens, and wild cranberries. Yet, it is also home to massive deposits of fossil fuels found in the oil sands, and oil extraction operations impact not only the forest landscape, but also the safety of wild foods, from animals to the plants that are found within. I speak with Dr. Janelle Baker, an ethnobiologist who studies the environmental impact of oil sands operations in Canada on traditional indigenous lands and their wild foodways. Let me tell you a bit about Janelle. Dr. Baker is an assistant professor in anthropology at Athabasca University in northern Alberta, Canada. Her research is on the Northern Bush Cree experiences with wild food contamination in Treaty No. 8 territory, which is currently an area of extreme extraction of oil sands. In this context, Janelle is currently collaborating with Big Stone Cree Nation environmental monitors using community-based methods and traditional ecological knowledge to sample moose and water, and partnering with microbiologists using a metagenomics approach to study the composition of microbiomes to map the source of potential harmful contaminants and identify markers of aquatic system health. Janelle is also a co-PI with Matisse anthropologist Zoe Todd on a project that is restoring land use governance and bull trout population health in a contested area of the Rocky Mountain foothills in Alberta, Canada. Janelle is currently the North America's representative on the board of directors for the International Society of Ethnobiology. She is also the winner of the 2019 Canadian Association for Graduate Students ProQuest Distinguished Dissertation Award in the Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences category. Janelle is a long-lasting friend of mine and so knowledgeable about this aspect of environmental health and how these extraction efforts impact food health. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Well, hey, Janelle, it's so great to see you again, even if it's over Zoom. And I'm really excited to have you on the show. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the really cool research that you're doing up in Canada. Thanks, Cassie. It's really nice to um, be uh, chatting with you today. Uh, yeah, my, my research is mostly with Northern Bush Crees in Northern Alberta, Canada. And that, that region just happens to um, coincide with the major oil sands deposits. So um, my work first started in that region in the context of traditional land use studies um, in terms of consultation between uh, uh, companies and government and, and First Nations about their treaty rights. But I quickly noticed in that context that people were really concerned about their food supply. Um, this is because they, uh, you know, mostly eat bush food, have a preference for it. 
Yeah, so, so what is bush food? Just so yeah. people know, maybe this is a very Canadian term, but <laughs> it kind of it kind of is. Bush is kind of a funny word that you can really like unpack. It's but um it's really bush food is wild food. And sometimes I call it that in my work, you know, too, just wild food. Um, but the type of forest, the boreal forest that's in that region, people call the bush. And so like Northern Bush Crees, when they translate their name for themselves, uh, Nakawinawak, they, they call themselves bush people. So oh. yeah, so their name like, you know, I, identifies the landscape. And, um, and so yeah, that food that they get from the bush is such an important part of their identity. And, um, and like I say, this is the incredible preference. So I've met elders who have um, never eaten meat or don't like to eat meat from the grocery store. They, they still only eat um, moose and fish, uh, you know, from their region. Hmm. Yeah, that's got to be really um, packed with lots of cultural relevance. And it's also probably pretty good for their health since you don't have a lot of the same kind of pro-inflammatory compounds you find in a lot of, of, of farmed meats. Yeah. Yeah. It's their lean meats. Um, you know, just being out on the land, uh, collecting that food is, you know, exercise and fresh air and it's where people speak their language when they're on the land. So young people are hearing their language and learning how those bush skills. So, um, yeah, it's kind of everything, you know, it's uh, going out for food is like what's fun and important and, and sort of the center of life there. Yeah. Well, speaking about the center of life, let's let's talk a little bit about berry patches and what role berry patches have in community and in communication and in nourishment and what is what is so special about a berry patch? Yeah. <laughs> berry patches are just like this wonderful place and I never get tired of going to them or talking about them. But well, you know, I ended up doing a project for years with Fort Mackay First Nation where we monitor their their um, berry patches. And so we, uh, you know, do air quality monitoring and, and testing of the berries. But we've also, um, you know, just go and I, you know, as a anthropologist, I just go and learn about the cultural relevance of the berries and their stories. And, and so, yeah, the berries are definitely a gathering place, um, you know, and a place of great happiness. It's summertime, you go with your family. Um, uh, people are in, in good moods there. And I, and I argue that um, those moods are sort of what people would call a protocol. So protocols like, you offer tobacco to show your gratitude to the plants before picking them so that they'll, um, they, so that you've shown them respect so that they'll produce berries again in the future. Um, but also like being in a good mood and not speaking ill of people or, you know, the landscape is also a really important part of being there. So when you're in a berry patch, people are jovial and it's, it's a, it's just a really great time. Um, but, you know, it's also, you know, in the boreal forest, there's not a lot of fruit and vegetable options. And so uh, those berries are really important fruit nutritionally, uh, you know, and calorie wise. So they, they, people preserve them and have all sorts of methods of storing them for the winter still. So can you take us through a visual walk of what is a boreal forest like? Like, is it full of ferns? Like what kind of trees do you find there? What kind yeah. of creatures? Like... I'm just trying to paint a picture of what this environment looks like. 
Yeah. So it's a it's a, an enormous forest that covers like sort of the north central part of all of Canada. Um, and it's uh, largely spruce trees. Mm-hmm. It's it's a very forest. So it has what we call muskeg. We even use that word in English, even though it is a Cree word. Um, and so muskeg is what I think people would often call a bog otherwise, you know. So it's like mm-hmm. really mossy um, and wet. Um, there's like a lot of peat moss usually. Um, and you do get some higher regions that will have pine, which are like sandy soils where we do go for the blueberries. Um, but yeah, to me, the archetypical boreal forest is spruce and boggy, um, uh, with, you know, types of cranberries that grow in the bog, mm. um, I get, you know, moose, uh, and caribou. So then caribou lichen, which is like a white, really dry, crunchy kind of lichen that the caribou eat. That's that to me. And and Labrador tea um, would be the other really sort of archetypical indicator plant species, you know, that are even a cultural keystone species in the boreal forest. Um, Labrador yeah. tea. Uh, we learned a which bit about. Yeah, we learned a bit about Labrador tea um, with uh, Chef Sean Sherman, who came on the show last season. And yeah, just a fascinating plant and fascinating um, flavors, it sounds like as well. It's beautiful, too, in this sort of um, subtle way. Like, like, you know, I grew up around it. and It's just like this leafy, bushy plant. But when you really sit down and look at it, like, the bottom side of the leaves are this orangey, fuzzy, like rusty color that's really quite stunning. And they bloom, they have these blue, uh, white blooms, uh, you know, in the spring. Um, but it's, it, yeah, again, like muskeg, well, so it's called muskeg tea in Cree, right? So the muskeg, the muskeg tea, and because uh, it, you know, grows in the muskeg. And um, um, so it's like a pleasure tea and medicinal and yeah, I would say it's a cultural keystone species. Like everybody has it. I've heard stories from people who are, you know, friends who are a little bit older than me that when they were kids, they used to go pick it and go to door to door to sell it, you know, to get like a little <laughs> pocket. Who's going to say no to a cute little kid who comes with a bag of <laughs> Labrador tea? Oh, that's great. I, I, maybe Sean Sherman talked about this, but it, it's also, you know, how um, Indigenous people here first helped settlers right because they showed up with scurvy and labrador tea is full of vitamin d so and you know it's really acknowledged as a as a sort of bridging plant like a relationship plant in that way oh that's fantastic and so you have labrador tea this amazing spruce forest moss right you know moose (laughs) lichens everywhere and then the berry patches (laughs) so one of the things that you've really gotten interested in in your research is the impact of environmental factors on the safety of wild foods. And you mentioned earlier the oil sands. And so what have you, what have you learned? And how did you track these kind of interactions between oil sands, pollutants, and, and the berries? Yeah, well, that's definitely ongoing work. So right now we're working... Uh, we've taken kind of a new angle. I'm working with some fabulous um, microbiologists. And so we're looking at um, water and moose, but, you know, from a microbiological perspective to look at how um, the microbiota in the, is being affected by pollution um, or being changed in the region. 
Um, but, but typically we've worked a lot with toxicologists. So just trying to do uh, studies. It's very expensive work in the lab, as you know, but looking at studies for heavy metals and volatile organic compounds that we, you know, you find as a result of um, the processing of, of oil sands. We, we have found that like with the berries for years in doing this work, before I even did the berry work, I always heard elders talk about dust on the berries and that dust was dirty and they didn't trust it. And they often got this kind of response, like, well, I'll wash the berries, whatever, no big deal. But we are finding now that, that um, dust in these mining areas is a major vector for mm. heavy metals. And likely some is absorbing into the berries. Like, it's really not a good thing to have dusty <laughs> berries, for example. But I was talking about, about, yeah, their moose and water studies. But we've done various studies where we've sampled um, all kinds of important foods. So animals, medicinal plants, um, which we just categorized. We, uh, we Essentially, anything the community tells us is an important food, we accept. So we don't make that designation between medicine and food because the community members don't really. Um, but we did previously do a study with Big Stone Cree Nation. We sampled 150 um, uh, food items that the community um, considered to be important or that they were concerned about being contaminated. But with, this was with Big Stone Cree Nation. So they identified 10 of the most um, important uh, species to them. And so they collected 10 of those 10, so 100 of those and then 100, the extra 50 were sort of wild cards of whatever people had in their freezers or found in the bush they wanted to have um, tested. And we partnered with the um, First Nations, um, oh my goodness, the Center for Indigenous Nutrition, Indi the Center for Indigenous People's Nutrition and Environment at McGill. And they did the testing for um, heavy metals and contaminants. Um, and we, you know, we found some of the things you might expect, like mercury in the fish. Um, there was lead in some of the rabbit's kidneys, but it's expensive work. And that's just one year's worth of testing. So it's hard to really find, you know, um, correlations or direction from certain, you know, co companies in the region at that point. So we're, we're trying to continuously build the environmental monitoring program with the Big Stone Cree Nation. Um, and, and so this is why we sort of, the community really wanted to look at moose and water. So that's why we've gone this direction and we've started looking at the microbiology. Um, we've also partnered with an amazing um, lab at the University of Calgary uh, in veterinary sciences, uh, Dr. Susan Kutz's lab. And so she's been previously doing this work or doing ongoing studies with caribou and musk oxen in the far north where community members have these kits so if you're out hunting or if you're out with a hunter and, um, and they're harvesting or they're butchering an animal, um, they have these little kits that like walk them through, you know, you take a piece of hide and a piece of kidney and, you know, they have a bag for anything that looks weird and like notes <laughs> on the animal that go back to Susan's lab. And then, uh, you know, then those members sometimes come and hang out in her lab and learn about how they do it. We just um, brought together some, um, gentlemen from the far north, some Inuit men with um, members from Big Stone Cree Nation, and we spent a week in her lab all just together learning about the mic, learning about how to use the microscopes and and how to do the sampling and looking at parasites. And we we spent time learning about zoonotic diseases quite a bit because in the north um, they have some issues with that, and so it was really timely because 
we all, you know, I just spent this week learning about, um, <laughs> you know, diseases that are passed from animals to humans and what that means. So, so yeah. the coronavirus actually sends to us. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's amazing. And, and such a great way to collaborate between, you know, field collections of samples, especially for animals that people are already harvesting for food to understand what's happening with their microbiome and then the, the environmental pollutants. Yeah. I think that's such important work that's broadly applicable to different parts of the world, really, if you think about the impact of pollution on our food systems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like taking a bit of a bigger picture than just the contaminants, because yeah, like I said, we were finding that work a little bit limiting. It's still really important. But if you're just testing, say, for lead or mercury, then you just find about lead or mercury. We're not t looking at the bigger picture. There are some toxicologists, you know, working on that. But at this point, it was really fun to expand. And, and, and um, the other thing about Dr. Susan Kutz's lab is that th they work with a pathologist. So we spent a, a couple of days um, doing um like autopsies <laughs> learning about uh you know uh learn in the actual pathology lab uh mm. and and that was a game changer for me and how and thinking about this because now like we they recently had a found a bunch of dead fish in in the in the big stone Cree community near wabaska and you know the elders said this isn't a normal sort of fish kill as as you would call it when a bunch of fish die off and so now that we have this relationship with the pathologist, we can take those individuals, you know, those animals right to a pathologist and they can do like an autopsy and tell us why they died. And I know it seems so obvious, but I don't know anyone doing that in the oil sense region. Wow. You know, um, it, you know and it, even the food testing, like, you know, because most science in the region is driven by the environmental impact assessment process. So doing a study of you know, predicting the impacts that a project, a proposed project will have on the landscape, right? And it, and everyone's talking about cumulative studies, but no one, like, they only look at a cumulative study within their own project footprint. They're not actually looking at all of the companies around them. Mm -hmm. And so, so you're not seeing this sort of responsive science. You're just seeing this predictive modeling, predictive science. So I, I'm particularly excited about this work and, and, um, yeah, and I mean, of course, it's the the work the community is doing. It was their idea, and the environmental monitors are the ones actually out on the land doing the sampling and collecting because they're the ones that know where things are going on or know where there's problems, or they can go out with elders or hunters and respond to concerns people have on the land. Um, so, so we find that a lot more meaningful. Uh, you, you know, we find that they they know where the animals are, for example, in ways that you don't know by doing modeling or helicopter flyovers right yeah yeah because they're so tied to the land you know one thing i'm i'm just thinking of as as we're talking about um environmental consequences of oil, oil sands is that we haven't really discussed what is an oil sand and what goes into the process of oil extraction from sand um could you just briefly give us a little bit of background on that and what are some of the yeah. the, the pollutants that arise from that yeah, so so oil oil sands are a bituminous deposit of of um, like a petroleum based product. So bitumen is like a really thick tar like um, oil. So the crude is it, it has to be separated from the sand um, and then diluted so that you can actually 
send it for even further processing, you know, to be useful. And so this is why um, only when oil is, has high prices have we seen booms in the oil sands extraction. And of course, as, you know, as the oil deposits of the world um, are depleted, we'll see more oil sands extraction, but it's actually environmentally expensive if I can make a neoliberal claim like that. It's, you know, and it, it's also very costly, energy intensive, right? So um, yeah, you like, and, and um, so the bitumen is uh, in underground deposits um, and in, in the Albertan context, it's only surface mineable along the Athabasca River. So the deposit is only close to the surface by this major river. Um, oh, that river, doesn't sound so, like, good. Water. <laughs> that doesn't no. sound good at all. <laughs> no, no. So you, you know where I'm going because um, these enormous mines and these enormous tailings ponds have to be on, on the river, right? And so um, there's plenty of valid concern about the tailing spawns leaking into the river. And also, where do you think they're getting all of this water from to mm -hmm. wash the oil away from this, right? Um, so, you know, as the deposit, like this is the Athabasca oil sand deposit I'm talking about. So as you go further away from, farther away from the river, um, it's deeper down. And so then they're using other, the companies are using other methods to extract. So in, in Big Stone Creek Nation territory, they don't have open pit mines. They're on the west side of the Athabasca River and on the western edges of the Athabasca oil sands deposit. So they, um, in their community, uh, people use mostly um, steam-assisted gravity drainage techniques. So they drill kind of two-kilometer-long pipes into the ground, and they steam or heat the bitumen, and then it's pulled out with the other pipe. So one pipe is steaming and heating, and the other one is pulling it out. Um, so it's not a big open pit mine, but you know it's very, it, there's a lot of air pollution. There's a lot of water intake. Um, some of them use aquifers for their water, but not everyone. Some of them are using surface water. You know, essentially, if there's no aquifer handy, then they use <laughs> surface water. And of course, community members are also very concerned about um, the use of the underground water. They they say it's drying out the muskeg or the bog that we talked about earlier. So mm. those peat, you know, the peat moss, the fens, the bogs. Uh, people say that they see that drying. Um, like that the could essence of the boreal forest, basically. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, this is a very wet environment. So if you're pulling all the water out, of course, mm. people are concerned. They're also concerned about underground contamination. Um, and, you know, there, I mean, climate change has got to be a factor or even just heating from all this industrial activity. And, and you know, the pollution coming off the vehicles is also a, a, a major factor in the region. You know, you've got all of this in industrial industrial noise and dust and and pollution from the combustion in the engines and um you know so it, it could very well be that it, the muskeg is heating too so these mosses are are drying out also just from a rise in temperature um yeah so so you can see how it's problematic the, it's also you know it's an alarming disruption of the landscape there's no doubt that a mine is you know, jaw dropping when you see them, right? So they're loud, they're very large, they smell bad. Um, you know, that. so it's very sensory for community members when they're out on the land and for animals, you know, presumably. Yeah. Well, how, how far have, what's the, what is the distance like between some of these um, ancestral Cree lands and the oil sands? Like, 
how far are you seeing environmental effects from the sands? We're not just yes. talking about right next door, right? These are quite some distance also from the sands. Well, it, it's a range. So Fort Mackay, who I worked with um, on the Berry Project, and I, I, I say that in the past, but we're probably still <laughs> doing some, you know, I, uh, the community really, uh, you know, they have a lot of their own uh, locally driven environmental monitoring projects. And so their, their, their projects are ongoing and we still have a relationship, but anyway, um, they're right in the heart of it. So I can send you a, you know, an image of a Google map that shows where their community is and where the open pit mines are. They're, they're essentially surrounded in them and some of them are very close. So th the issue in Northern Alberta, this is treaty number eight region, and the treaties were, you know, signed early in, in Canadian um, history, technically between the Crown or the Queen, um, it's federal, um, and, you know, and First Nations. And in Treaty 8, um, well, let's say the, the other treaties farther south, which is where the majority of the settler population in Canada lives, um, those treaties were signed, uh, you know, essentially to push people into areas to get them off the land so people could farm, you know, yeah. and pioneers homestead but in the north um the boreal forest was never seen as viable farmland and so um people were given really tiny tiny reserves to live on uh with the promise and the assumption that um they would continue their traditional land use practices on all of the remaining landscape and so that is you know, the, these tree eight region around the oil sands, that's all crown or federal lands. It's not privately owned land, except for in the little townships, right? Okay. And so, so when we talk about traditional territories, the mines are literally right on people's territories. And, you, and these SAG-D projects too are actually really close to the little pocket reserves where people live. But even more so, they're right in the middle of people's traditional hunting and gathering areas. Um, and, and sort of, there, there's this sort of bureaucratic uh, move that's been made where um, people identify their family hunting territories through their trap lines. So sort of a, you know, a figure in a family is kind of the, the hunting boss of the family and they're the, they hold the trap line, um, which is, yeah, like a, a sort of a bureaucratic license through our government. So what, what is a trap line? A, tra a trap line is like a, uh, a designated area that a person has the right to trap for animals, for bearing animals. Okay. So, so when like forts, you know, when the settlers first arrived in the region and these sort of like Hudson Bay trading posts, literally there were Hudson Bay trading posts in these communities, but also forts. Um, they, that's how people started having access to cash and goods. Um, but it was, it was actually kind of an indentured uh, system because the local Hudson Bay um, agents would um, loan people like give them guns and traps and tools to go out on the land for the winter and people would go and like trap and then they'd bring the furs in and trade them in with the Hudson Bay Company. This was the time that, you know, it was very fashionable for people to wear beaver felt hats. In, in ah, that's like your top so, hat, your black top hat, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. 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 And, and, and the women also wear fur, wore a lot of furs, right? So they would go back to Europe and, 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 but, the, but it would just pay off you know, the, 
rifles and the ammunition and whatever, the fuel, the sugar matches, whatever people were, were getting mm. at the beginning of the season. But it was like incredibly skewed. Like, you know, you hear stories with people with like stacks, you know, higher than the airplanes of wow. bringing back out of the bush. Um, but anyway, so that sort of translated. So like several people or a lot of people in the region um, still trap a little bit for money um and and again and it's it's a way of sort of showing territory or land use in the region um so so like as someone who's a trap cabin and a trap line that's also where they'll go pick berries okay also where they'll go hunt moose and net fish and smoke it and that sort of thing but it's it's not it's not technically their they don't own that land. It's federal land, but they have permission to use it. Basically, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's it's murky and and con- like a little bit confusing because um, non-Aboriginal people in Canada can also have a trapline. It's it functions. A trapline functions just like a grazing lease. If you're familiar with that concept as well. Mm-hmm. Also, federal lands where a farmer can go like have their cattle. So so there's very particular. Uh, rules like you can't dwell you can't live on this area year-round you can have a little cabin where you can stay and you can do very specific activities um yeah and you do have some uh you know consultation rights right around like what happens in that area but yeah you don't physically own the land you can't tell people to leave it or anything like that um in the first nations context i mean the treaty rights are are combined with that right so if you're on treaty 8 territory um on crown land people have rights according to treaty to harvest so so any treaty member any treaty holder can go and hunt or fish whenever they want technically in treaty eight territories but if someone owns has a trap line that individual will respect that person's access you know mm-hmm. you send them permission yeah. or you would go on their on their trap line i see okay and so what what local people are finding then that are hunting these lands or are foraging for for wild berries is that they're seeing changes in the landscape like you mentioned the dust on the berries yeah the elders well, and, and, yeah and you you read my mind this is exactly where i was gonna go because at the beginning of our conversation we we're talking about well what is a berry patch and how are they defined so berry patches like there's certain families that have always gone to certain berry patches at certain times so like you know some first nations in other parts of canada really have ownership over a berry patch you know in their traditional law but in in cree communities you don't really own it but people know who uses that berry patch and they respect it you know Mm -hmm. and um so what will happen is is if there's a of a mine or like a large industrial development happens on your trap line and clears out your berry patch, you no longer have a familial berry patch. Or like some of the berry patches that we see around Wabuska, they're still there, but they're right beside like oil and gas processing stations. You know, and there's even sometimes signs that don't eat the berries from the company. So people, so even if it's still physically there, there's ones that people don't, or yeah, ones that are by the road now and they get covered in dust. Like no one feels good about eating those. Like you or I wouldn't go and eat berries, you know, beside a dusty mine, right? That, that, that's gross. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, but the problem is in, is in the consultation process and in the environmental impact assessment process, um, you know, companies all the time or the biologists working for them will say, well, we, this mine will 
destroy these berry patches as the community has like you know identified but there's you know this is have berry habitat everywhere so there's other berry patches so we're not so they'll say they have what they call no significant impact hmm. um and and they'll they'll also like when someone constructs a pipeline or a power line they actually will claim that they're increasing berry habitat <laughs> by disturbing the soil are you kidding me <laughs> yeah so so they'll clean and clearing the clearing wow. the larger trees you know so that so that they're saying well we're increasing berry habitat so we're actually improving the area for traditional land use but of course nobody in their right mind picks berries under a power line or on a pipeline like so that this is really the heart of where my research came as an anthropologist and an ethnobiologist because I was like well I want to talk about how people understand things to be contaminated because there's clearly a disconnect right between um this policy and 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 what people are doing and experiencing so yeah. even if areas in their community they're not picking them because they don't um trust them right yeah absolutely as they should you know not trust them i mean who wants to eat some from an environmental wasteland that's just yeah, yeah. wow <laughs> and so and so in these environmental impacts do local people, I guess it sounds like their, their rights are really restricted in, in, in being able to say no to these developments. Is that, is, I mean, how difficult is it to stand up to prevent um, further development of oil sands in different regions? Yeah. So communities work really, really hard on this, you know, um, <laughs> and there is a consultation process. Um, there've been a few court cases in Canada that have, uh, you know, made a clear ruling that um, the government um, is required to consult First Nations about the impacts on their treaty rights and their traditional territories, which is, is then passed kind of to the companies and the companies do it through, you know, their environmental impact assessment um, process, right? So, um, so the communities work really hard at like, uh, you know, making their cases, um, but I've, I've never seen you know, maybe sometimes a company will move something a little bit, <laughs> you know, location of something. Yeah. Uh, uh, but but a, comp a, a community has never actually been able to stop a development in their territory that I know of. Hmm. Uh, yes. Yeah. But, the, but so, so now it seems like when I first started this work, it was around 2005, 2006. Uh, that was right after the Miccosoe Cree Supreme Court ruling, which is a Northern Bush Cree community north of where I work, um, who, who, yeah, you know, showed that um, they weren't adequately consulted about a road being built in their traditional territory. Um, so since then, everyone was doing these traditional land use studies. And now I do really see this shift in energy being, being put towards community-based environmental monitoring, which is the area I'm working more in. I just see more funds all the time sort of being made available from the provincial and federal government uh, for communities to fund their own uh, monitoring studies. And most of those partner with scientists like we have. Uh, yeah. Yeah. To, to sort well, the, of two eyed seeing, sorry. And this, well, this ties into my next question around the passage of traditional knowledge. And so uh, traditional knowledge is knowledge passed from generation to generation around land resource use around cultural traditions, the music, the language, the foods, the medicines of, of people. And I'm wondering what have you found in your work around that angle of how has this been affected um, as land use practices change? And is the integration of communities in some of these um, 
environmental assessments, does that help to foster traditional knowledge? Because, um, you know, the wisdom of the elders and people that are familiar with, with nature is being taken into account during these assessments? Yeah, this is, it's, this is such a, uh, a complicated, you know, yeah. like, topic, right? And so I would, I would argue, yes. And it's sort of always been my stance that, that the biggest accomplishment in any of this kind of land use study consultation work is that young people go out on the land with elders. Mm. Sometimes it's their, their own, you know, family members and sometimes it's not. And um, yeah. So like there's funding for people to go do that. And um, I think that's always really great. Um, I think that undeniably, if you're physically disrupting the landscape, um, you know, fewer people are finding uh, places or access to the land, um, you know, easier accessible. So um, lots of people in communities, especially communities or, or whose territories are really close to mines, will say they go farther and farther to go hunting or to get their medicines um, for stuff that's safe. But you know, you have to have money, you have to have gas money, like distances are large in the north, right? Yeah. <laughs> and gas and um, yeah, like it's a big endeavor. So um, uh, yeah, so I, I do think that that is a, a problem. And so, so I think in, in this context, like it's such a, a, you know, obviously a clearly political context, uh, you know, in Northern Alberta. And so, um, I, I always find it difficult when when um, people you know talk too strongly about the youth not having access to their culture anymore. Um, there's lots of people like the the cool thing is in some of these communities, young people speak Cree still, mm -hmm. but you know that's always a good indicator. But you do meet people of a certain generation or age group who understand it but are kind of shy to speak it. And then, you know, then some people might say that young ones aren't fully speaking it at all. But again, I still do hear them uh, speak or understand. And, and maybe some people are being more diligent about speaking it at home. So, so it's a bit of a mix, but you do see that, that concern of, of loss of access to the bush or people to teach you or, or ceremonies or language. But I also think that, you know, since the beginning of, um, the Canadian government in Canada, there's been this narrative around assimilation, right? Mm -hmm. At first, intentional, bold, we're going to assimilate people, we're going to put them in residential schools, um, so we're going to take their culture away so that they can, you know, be like us and everyone will get along or whatever, you know, and um, uh, and that was obviously a clear and horrific failure, and so the sort of next wave of like extreme colonization in these regions is this industrialization of people's territories. And so, yeah, no doubt it's putting pressure on people. But at the same time, it's easy for, I think, um, like the Alberta government, for example, in our province, to make the argument that people are losing their culture so that they can say, well, this is an untapped workforce. Let's recruit them to work in these mines. And then they're no longer a problem, right? Yeah. They're not occupying their territories or hunting and fishing in the area. So, um, and and I and I, I fear for the youth hearing these narratives, um, in that, you know, it'll it, it it's got to be sad and depressing, 
And if you hear people always talking about how you're losing your culture, then maybe you don't have the energy to, to really work hard at, at, at embracing it, right? So yeah. I think if we talk about you know, how the youth that are revitalizing, who are actively learning Cree, who are actively out in the bush and celebrating that, I feel like it, that, that, um, that position is, is a much um, useful, much more useful and stronger one. Like I say, I, I just feel like the assimilation argument is just a really slippery slope in enabling assimilation or believing that it's a thing right like yeah you know assimilate they would have a lot you know they people are super resilient you know and you can see how the culture is resilient and how people you know still go on the land right so that yeah well i wonder on that on that perspective of resilience you've you've had the opportunity to work with many um many really wise elders and be out in the bush with them and, and learn from them about their traditions. I was just wondering if you might be able to share some stories or tell us a bit about these individuals that have such a close history and, and tie to nature and kind of what are some of the biggest lessons that you learned from them? Oh, that's a big question. I know. (laughs) I keep throwing the big ones at you. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, I would say that like, just when I think I'm starting to understand something, someone will say something that totally like blows my mind. <laughs> it blows um, I, you know, I've, I've written a bit about this, but uh, there's, I find that there's always, there's a lot of humor, like you, you know, humor is sort of how you express and deal with things in the bush. And so you have a lot of fun and um uh, when I first started working with Big Stone Cree, we were looking at a, a proposed um, really large oil sands development just north of, of Wabasca, kind of the main town or hamlet where the chief and council are based. And north of there is a little community called Chippewan Lakes. And it's the, one of the most charming places I've ever been. It was a flying community until maybe 10 years ago. Um, so you can only access it, access it by airplane. Yeah. By float plane mm-hmm. or, or, you know, by horse, they horseback. And so, um, and then, then, uh, the a local logging company made a dirt road there and then a shell oil, but they had a subsidiary company, which is what these big companies do though. Started little company with a different name and then, uh, you know, start a project kind of hush hush. And then when it gets big enough, they acquire it, but mm. it was all along. And uh, so they were working on this. And so um, I worked with a bunch of elders who are still uh, like a family that I go, I spend a lot of time with and I go hunting with and, and to their trap line and stuff. The Noskis is the, the family's name. And so, um, yeah, so their trap line was being really uh, affected. Their trap lines were being affected by th- this development. And so we were doing a traditional land use study. And so we actually one of the things that we did is we walked the old original trail from, from the community to the river and down. So how people used to get to the main town, we used to ride horsebacks. And of course it's really interesting because there's old campsites and old stoves and all these stories along the trail. So hmm. it took several days to walk it. So it was really fun. Wow. Got rained out. We got to stay in one of the elders, like cabins, log cabins in the, in, in Chippewan Lake, which is a beautiful lake. And, um, and we went duck hunting. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So at the beginning of it, um, 
uh, she, you know, the company required uh, that <laughs> in order to be sort of contractors or, or, or to be people doing traditional land use assessments on their own traditional territory, right? So here's the family, their territory is being, you know, about to be disrupted by this massive project. And they say, okay, we're going to consult you about what, you know, the, what's there, like your traditional land use in the area, because that's your treaty, right? So we'll pay you to go out and wander around in the bush and like record everything that could be impacted and write a report, right? Okay. <laughs> this was one of my first projects with Big Stone Cree Nation years ago. This was like probably 2006 or seven or something. Okay. So, but in order to do that, like Shell Oil has all of these safety rules. So <laughs> weren't allowed to like carry chainsaws or a rifle or ride a boat to their own trap, their own boat to their own trap line. What? <laughs> because they had to have like all these contractor safety rules. I'm working on a paper on this actually. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, I'm a, they're, 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 we also have all kinds of absurdities with the Barry project like this too, right? Like, uh, the minute, you know, because it's like, even though it was like a scientific study, the oil and gas rules apply. So suddenly mm -hmm. places get, become rendered a, a oil and gas work site as opposed to a traditional place that these people have occupied for thousands of years. Right? So they're supposed to document traditional land use, but not allowed to use all the tools that they typically use in traditional land yes. use. Okay. Unless we... Yeah, so unless we had safety. So so we had to do like a two-day water safety training course at the local pool, <laughs> right? <laughs> Did that. And then we had to have, we had to do a bear awareness training course, right? Because mm -hmm. this is safety things. You're in the bush, you got to learn about bears. When we technically weren't supposed to bring the rifles, but of course, I'm like, can you guys please hide the rifles and bring them? Because... <laughs> Because there, there are, and when you talk about bear, these are not little cute, cuddly black bears like we have here in Georgia. These, I mean, what kind of bear are you talking yeah. about? Grizzly? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so there's a little bit of grizzly, but it, in that particular region, it's mostly black bears too. Uh -huh. There's a lot of them. Like when I've been out in the bush, like hardly a day goes by where you don't see a bear, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. um, and you need to, yeah, you need to take them seriously. But I mean, oh, this, this opens up all kinds of stories because of, because of course, Cree's the bear, the bear is like spiritually probably the most central animal in this region. And so they, you know, they believe that a bear won't attack you unless um, there's something spiritually wrong. And so they say, if you speak Cree to a bear, they'll leave you alone usually. Mm. Right. Um, so Anyway, so, but we're told, so this actually links really well to the story because, okay, so we have to take a bear awareness training. So, and it's, I'm sure it's really expensive because like every, like this was in the middle of the, the oil boom. So things were crazy expensive. And, um, um, and so like safety services and like these kind of training things were really expensive. So we, the, like Shell paid for a guy, a white guy to come from Nebraska, <laughs> like a town that's like a couple hours away. He drives up and gives us like a two day, and we use the elders like traditional log cabin <laughs> where like the elders would meet. And he gave us this like um, course on how to identify bears in the bush. To, wait, wait. So, <laughs> white guy from the city comes yeah. out to the bush to teach elders who have spent their entire life in the woods. Like and like, like these people tracking bears and <laughs> yeah, yeah, hunting them. They do hunt the yeah. bears. There. Yeah. And so, so yeah. like they literally 
Yeah, the people who literally came from a community where everybody speaks Cree, like everyone eats off the land because like it's log cabins that they hand build in the bush, right? Like they yeah. don't, it's not like they're not wise to the ways of the world. Like these guys, you know, they go to Edmonton or the city or whatever, like in their lives, but like they've literally lived on the land their whole lives. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so they bring this guy in. And so it was like so absurd, right? Um, and the <laughs> could tell he could tell too and he was like to be fair to him he was respectful right but he still had to like you know teach us the the way different bears act and stuff right and <laughs> so some of the younger guys because we always have youth in these projects so they were there one of the younger guys you know had this we got little cards saying we completed the course and they're like okay now when i see a bear i'll just kneel down and show him my card <laughs> and and but dennis yeah this is where i first started learning about these oh you know that this again, and I'm still learning, I'm still a novice about sort of the spiritual aspects of the, of the bear. Um, and Dennis Noski, you know, he said to me, like, none of this, what this stuff, this guy says matters. And like, I thought Dennis was going to tell me about like, you know, how to behave in the bush around bears. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, but really, yeah, what he said was, you know, a bear won't attack you unless, you know, a person with spiritual power has put medicine or compelled the bear to attack you. Um, right? So totally different way of understanding yeah. how animals behave. So he was saying like, yeah, bear is not going to bother a human unless someone, unless like especially a spirit bear, a bear that's taken over by someone who's spiritually powerful, that they're, they're trying to do you harm. And so like throughout my time in the community, I've had friends will ask me like are you having any weird dreams have you dreamt about bears uh, what happened if you did um, because you can tell a lot about whether or not someone's trying to affect your life and your well-being um, through bears oh and, fascinating yeah so I mean yeah. they like bear ceremonies and bear sweats and and I've, I've even heard people talk about how um, if someone's really traditional that they worship the bear that's like a way of referring to them so, so you can just, so to me, the story is a way of um, showing just these extremely different ways of, of knowing and being in the world and relating to the, the uh, you know, the world, right? So one, yeah. you have to follow safety bureaucracy <laughs> and what, you know, one is um, about how, how to be in relationship with a bear, right? Well, I, I think it's it, it just sheds a lot of light on why it is so difficult for outsiders to understand traditions because they're applying this whole other lens on how they view the world. And it's just such at odds with how people that are actually, you know, as you explained, like are, they're embedded within nature there. They have a different kind of relationship with nature um, than someone from an urban area ever could. And yeah. Yeah, ex- exactly. So, um, and, and again, the, you can't really separate the things out, but um, I mean, right away, people, you know, like, I feel like there's often sort of this aggression from scientists in the region around whether or not an elder really knows, like, they're always trying to prove whether or not someone is right or wrong about their knowledge. But like, you know, people who are on the land and pay attention and are there their entire lives going to the same locations to observe wildlife behavior, like they have the most subtle indicators of change, right? Mm-hmm. So 
yeah, like an elder will tell you, oh, the ducks aren't laying their eggs at the right time, or the shell is different, or, you know, I've heard some people talk about a beaver's fur not being right, um, so they won't eat the meat, right? The fur was an indicator to them that something was wrong with the animal. I mean, then we see even more extreme things like uh, disgusting growths on the fish and oil on ducks and things like that, where, the, the, you know, the animals are clearly... Um, affected but but even though like there was a really subtle stuff my mind never ceases to be blown by these like incredibly subtle observations that people have and I you know I can't help but trust that and and you know follow and learn from from those perspectives and I don't I don't feel the need to prove whether they're right or wrong but it's actually the communities now who are saying we want to partner with scientists we can trust who can also help further what we're saying or prove what we're saying to the outside world because people aren't hearing us, you know, and we want to show are being impacted. Um, I love that idea of like to be able to apply, you know, to look at this through both the cultural lens and also Western scientific lens. Um, Mm -hmm. Because this, like you said, those cues from nature can actually be really insightful. I mean, that's what ecology is all about, right? Is, is reading mm-hmm. cues from nature to understand what's going on in a habitat. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just part of their way of engaging with the land. Yeah, I've had, it's, sorry, mm-hmm. sorry. No, go ahead. Well, it's so largely seasonal in this context, right? When you have, uh, you know, a landscape uh, you know, climate that is so based on, uh, you know, like extreme differences in seasons. Um, I feel like you really see those indicators showing up in when things are supposed to happen. And those are embedded in like the Cree language and in the Cree calendar, you know, like the, the different moons literally will indicate to you what's supposed to be happening. And, and elders in, in the region I work, but I've also heard it from elders in the far north, they say this seasons are shifting. Like they're like, so, so we don't, so it's not just like winter has totally changed, but like it starts later and it ends later. And I would say in my own personal life, I can agree. Like when I was a kid, there was always snow on the ground at Halloween. And now sometimes we don't have snow until just around Christmas. And like right now I'm sitting here, I mean, freak snowstorms happen, but like I'm sitting here looking at an extreme snowstorm out my window, <sighs> you know, um, when it should be raining, like, uh, you know, yeah. you should be able to hunt Easter eggs outside. So um, and we're and we're taping this mid-April, so yeah, yeah that is. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty sad. So, um, but uh, um, I guess so. What I'm saying is, is I think there's something really important around those seasonal changes, like when um, migrational animals are supposed to, you know, um, be there, or when when breeding happens, or when uh, animals like how animals will build their their homes or their environments. Um, in preparation for the winter as well. So uh, an elder I used to work a lot with who passed away, uh, G-bomb, late G-bomb, you know, he would talk a lot about the fur um, thickness or what the muskrat or the beaver was doing in late summer, fall, and that you could tell what the winter was going to be like, you know, and mm-hmm. he, those are really strong survival skills, right? Because you're like, okay, it's going to be a rough winter because of the way they're behaving. We better get extra food, Right. Yeah. I mean, all of this is tied to food and health and the way that, you know, the observations of wild foods, of, of wildlife and plants are key to, you know, making your provisions for the long winter and, you know, the safety of those foods, like you mentioned, the abnormal growths and things that are seen on some, some fish. Um, 
being in tune to like, to all those aspects is so important to health. Oh yeah. And think of the anxiety, right? Like, so like we started off talking about how it's healthier to eat your traditional foods, right? They're leaner. Mm -hmm. Um, you're getting exercise. Like it's not these like refined sugars and wheats and whatever. And so, um, yeah, it's significantly healthier, but what if you have anxiety all the time about whether or not your food is safe? And, and again, that's another one of the major, um, influences of my research is just like how do we balance that right like how do we say yeah clearly nobody wants to eat berries right beside an open pit mine yeah you know is the food in the grocery store any better which is also you know in these northern contexts extremely expensive fruits and vegetables are like really expensive and overpriced and they come in saran wrap and individual slices and it's just absurd yeah you know, so at this point, bush food is safer. I mean, it's better for all of us, right? So well, it's I, it's a, it's amazing the changes that can happen in in the span of a single life, you know, a lifespan. Mm-hmm. You know, because these oil sands. When were the oil sands introduced? I mean, are we talking twenty years ago, forty? Um, well, the the late seventies and eighties is when they first started building um, uh, some of the mines, and then. Um, you know, in the last 10 to 20 years, they really, you know, expanded. Um, that being said, the, I went, I went back fishing through the early historical documents, you know, of the first treaty commissions and so-called explorers that came to the region. Mm-hmm. They saw the bitumen, um, in the banks of the Athabasca river, like coming out of the ground, you know, in the different strata. And they wrote back, you know, to, to Ottawa, you know, saying there's no doubt that there's some value here. There's mineral value here. So or even when they first signed the treaty and they were saying, okay, a reason for signing the treaty is that we're going to eventually be extracting minerals in this region. Wow. Wow. Which was 1880s. 1880s. Yeah. Wow. Well, if there's one thing you could leave us with, Janelle, like what, what are some, what would be the biggest aha moment you've had in your research and kind of where do you hope to see your research go in the future? Well, I, I, my research and my energy now, I really, well, well, like, let's just say I did applied work for a lot of years and then decided to do my PhD on this topic. And I'm now, now, you know, in a tenure track position. And I would say that every project I do and every step I make, I'm thinking about ways in which I can help bring my courses and projects to youth in the communities. Mm-hmm. So, so the, where I want to see my projects go is that, or my work to go is that community members are, are, are doing the work and um, able to, to bridge the world, these worlds. So what people who, who know their traditions are grounded in their traditions and can also do the science themselves. That's great. It's and, all about of capacity course, building, right? It's capacity yeah. building within communities. That's great. Yeah, and, and, and with communities. And there's already some really impressive people from these communities, like Big Stone Cree Nation. I know like several people with university educations, my colleague, Dr. Josie Oje, she's from Big Stone Cree Nation. And she was like a council member when I was doing my research and my biggest champion. Like she really made sure my research happened. And now she's a colleague at Athabasca University. So 
that's just like the most wonderful thing. But um, so, yeah. And, and so really it's, it's about mentoring. So like even our, our, our moose and water project, um, we have community members. They're not that young. There are a couple of guys who are hunters who are the environmental monitors. So we used our research grant. It does pay some lab costs, but most of us who like, are partnered in the project are trying to use our own resources and we put grant towards the community members. So those guys are on salary. Like we pay, our project pays for two community monitors to go out and do the sampling and the work and be trained to do it. Um, and they're also taking, because my, my university does online learning or distance learning, uh, as a part of the project, we've enrolled them in courses that they're, so they're getting university credits for the work they're doing. So there, I have an, a, a course on community-based um, methods. It's an anthropology course. So that's the first thing they're doing is interviewing elders and doing a project where they get feedback from the elders about what they should be sampling. Um, and then, you know, the next thing, hopefully they'll get some more, some science credits with some of my other colleagues. And um, yeah, so so that's really the where I, where I envision my work is how do I support community members to to be doing the work that I do, right? That's um, great, yeah. In terms of aha moments, my goodness, I would say it's, I, I'm, I'm sure after we're done talking, I'll think of some big aha moment I've had. <laughs> but, um, it, to me, it's a lot about the little ahas as well, you know? Like those day-to-day -day moments of listening, um, stepping back and listening, right? And, um, uh, you know, kind of, kind of like the bear story that I, I, I mentioned with Dennis Noski, because like that story sort of goes on, where I have aha moments all the time about bears and what they mean. Um, and it's like every person I talk to, they might tell me the same story, but there's always like something new. And so, and that always reminds me to just like slow down and listen, you know. Um, and, and I think that work in these communities is slow and it is a lifetime of listening, you know, it's not just sort of like what Linda um, Black Elk would call helicopter work, right? You can't just sort of helicopter in and and out again um, with the information. It's a it's a lifetime of listening and learning and working with families and communities, um, and all of those little moments along the way of like, oh, the <laughs> you know, the, uh, well, I, I've written about this as well, but you know, the berries can can hear us, right? Like that's something. You know, and, and all the different ways that they can hear us and respond to how we are in the berry patch, right? Or that the bear can hear us. So if we speak Cree to it, it can understand us. And sometimes a bear can even hear your thoughts, right? So you have to, you have to think well and speak well and, and be well, right? And it's, so it's all those little moments of like, how do, we, how do we listen to one another, be well, have good relationships, you know? Mm -hmm. It's, mind, it's all about mindfulness and, and mindful mm -hmm. intentions when engaging with nature is what it sounds like to me. That's And one another. Yeah. yeah. Well in nature. Yeah. Very much so. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Chanel, for selling, for sharing these um, insights with us. It's just fascinating work that you do. And I think there's so much potential um, for continued growth and collaborations with communities and community members. And I'm really excited to see um, how your work evolves over the years. Thanks, Cassie. I'm, uh, I'm so excited about your, your work as well and your podcast. So thank you so much for, for inviting me. Awesome. Thanks. I'm Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. 
recorded on Zoom from home during the COVID-19 quarantine period. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or on Apple Podcasts. We've got a fabulous lineup of topics and shows for you this season. Be sure to take a moment to share the link to the show with your friends and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can find all of our old episodes at foodiepharmacology.com. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time.